even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget, falls drop by drop upon the heart, until in our own day despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another. Feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. And welcome to the podcast in the words of Vasa. Today we will be discussing the life and legacy of former New York Senator, former Attorney General of the United States, and brother of uh, former President John F. Kennedy. We will be discussing about Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, to discuss his life, I am joined by an author, entrepreneur, and uh, an educator, Mr. Justin M. Buffer. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, can you introduce yourself to our fans? Sure. Uh, my name is Justin Buffer. I'm a lifelong educator of uh, students and adults of all ages. I own a educational institution here in the United States called the Cambridge Learning Center of New Jersey. We help students with test prep and tutoring and an educational and learning enhancement in all subjects, as well as college students prepare for major exams and help in their subjects. And I'm also been a history educator my whole life. Uh, and I've written uh, a book called uh, Letters of Gratitude to American Heroes of Social Justice. Where would we be without them as a way of helping Americans um, of all ages help connect the achievements and social justice advancements and hard work and sacrifices of past American heroes with their lives today so Americans can appreciate what they have, be inspired by the people that came before them and be inspired to protect them and fight for them. Okay, great. So I'll, I think we should start our discussion about Robert now. And we'll start with Robert's, uh, Bobby's early life and education. Can you tell us about his early life and what was his education? Sure. As anybody who knows something about politics uh, probably knows that the Kennedys are a very large family. And Robert was born into a family of a lot of children. And he was the seventh child of nine children. And he, you know, he was low in the family pecking order, and uh, he tried very hard to get the attention of his older brothers often uh, when he was young, uh, usually to no avail. But then he began to, um, as he became an adult, he be, uh, his family started to recognize his talents. And, uh, you know, when you're part of a big family, you know, every child wants yes. attention from their parents and uh, to be close to their siblings. And, you know, it's, it's harder when there's a big family. So, you know, Bobby, you know, found his he found himself standing out more as he got older and his talent started to become excavated and blossom. And that was when his brother chose him in 1952 to lead his Senate campaign. He was only uh, 27 years old at the time. And so growing up, you know, his father, the Kennedy father, was very competitive, pushed all of his kids a lot. Uh, you know, his older brother, Joe died in World War II on a bombing mission. Uh, obviously, his older brother, Jack, John F. Kennedy, won a Purple Heart. And their father, uh, again, pushed all of them. And uh, also, Bobby born into a life of uh, privilege. His father was the ambassador to Great Britain under President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt. 
And because of this, Bobby was able to even have a relationship with uh, Frank and Roosevelt uh, through, uh, through mail. They both like to collect stamps. And uh, he, uh, you know, the, the father, his father really pushed him to hold public office and to, you know, use their power in the world. You know, he, his father uh, was a very wealthy man and made a lot of money in different ways. And it, it would, uh, you know, when John F. Kennedy and Bobby uh, entered politics, uh, it was more, um, I mean, many of the people said, and even John F. Kennedy attested later, much to gain the approval of their father and their mother in many ways. But okay, that all changed for Bobby later, yes. And what was Joe's death's uh, impact uh, on Kennedy family as his uh, brother died in World War II? Uh, when, Joe's, when Joe died in World War II, it put a lot of pressure on uh, John F. Kennedy. He was now the heir apparent and the father and the son who whom his father placed a lot of emphasis on uh the the one to uh bring the kennedy name more prominence his older brother joe what happened was just to give you a little dynamics into the kennedy family um when john f kennedy came back from world war ii and won a purple heart for his uh valiant efforts with pt 109 um and joe kennedy had already been home and when John F. Kennedy from the family was gaining so much approval, it motivated Joe just to go back to do something to match his little brother's accomplishment. And it got him, um, you know, in, and inevitably he was unfortunately killed during the war. And uh, when he died, it put a lot of pressure on Jack to fulfill his father's wishes for to bring the, the presidency or uh, high, high recognition for the Kennedy name. Okay, so when John 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 F. Kennedy ran for his campaign in 1960, so what was Bobby's role in his brother's presidential campaign? Uh, he ran the campaign very successfully, uh, and you know he he really had to had a few roles. He had he was very protective of his of his brother. He made sure that his brother uh, was seen fairly. He was also, though, taking a lot of direction from their father, who had um, a lot of influence on the campaign. Uh, and Bobby also, at that time, became very influenced because he saw the, the prejudice and discrimination that his brother faced during the campaign for their Catholic background, even their Irish background, mostly their, um, their Catholicism. And that uh, hit him helping his brother shape their message in response to that and John F. Kennedy's message during that campaign that nobody asked him what his religion was when he was fighting for his country. Um, really, Bobby had a lot of influence on that. Um, and Bobby had a lot of influence in his campaign message and making sure the grassroots were out to help pull off that victory, which was very narrow. It was very, very, very narrow, um, that victory. And as we know, there was uh, there were a lot of people saying that Nixon is favorite, and that was kind of they were saying that uh, John is inexperienced. So it was kind of remarkable victory, and their presidential campaign uh, succeeded in a lot of ways. Yes, yes, people were saying he wasn't ready, he was young, and and Nixon was young too. But Nixon was the vice president at the time, so it's hard. You know, sometimes it's it's difficult to beat a vice president who, from a president, Eisenhower was very popular, and Eisenhower. He was late to endorse Nixon, but yes, it was still a remarkable victory for 
uh, someone so young at the presidency, um, f 43 years old when he was elected and took office. Okay, and uh, during jo John's time, he, uh, he appointed Bobby as an attorney general. Uh, as there was a lot of criticism uh, about his appointment, but we saw, so what was his role and how he dealt with it as an attorney general? Well, Bobby, yes. Bobby, you know, the attorney general at the time, the, uh, he did appoint his brother. That was mostly to his father's urging, uh, made him pick his brother. I mean, he, was gonna, he probably would have done it anyway. Bobby was a very, probably the president's, as one would imagine, closest confidant. Uh, and besides being his confidant, he also uh, helped him steer the ship, uh, if you will, through the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Bobby was uh, prosecuting organized crime still, uh, and at that time. And also, he also, in a very thing that many people don't talk about, is he uh, was also took a lot of interest in Washington, D.C., because the federal government has jurisdiction in Washington, D.C., and he was took a large interest in the youth in Washington, D.C., and making sure that there were programs for uh, youth who were at risk. And he took a, a larger role in that than people knew. He told people that, you know, if he wasn't born into privilege, he could have ended up in trouble also. Uh, he, he knew he had a rebellious streak, so he had a lot of compassion, even back then, for people who, who can go on the wrong path. And he, he, was, he did that. And he also, uh, you know, for the mo he also, as attorney general, helped his brother navigate the civil rights crisis. Uh, the Freedom Riders who were riding from, um, across different states who were um, in great danger. But the federal government, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, gives the federal government jurisdiction in issues of interstate commerce. And Bobby Kennedy eventually stepped in with his brother and, and uh, took a stand on civil rights, protecting the, the freedom riders, uh, African-American and white people um, and people of all backgrounds on that, on those buses who were uh, protesting segregation and public accommodations. And many of much of the work he did as attorney general to even, um, you know, urge, uh, even help uh, escort students uh, past Governor George Wallace in the famous uh, showdown at the uh, at the college door uh, in Alabama, they uh, that laid the groundwork for the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was passed after his brother's death, um, and were the first steps in the federal government taking a stand in the issues of uh, segregation and civil rights that had up till that point, up till up to 1954, been mostly a state's issue. Okay, and uh, as you talked about Cuban Missile Crisis, so what was Bobby's role in that Cuban Missile Crisis, helping his well, brother? He was his uh, closest confidant. He, you know, helped the negotiations with uh, with Khrushchev, who was the premier of the of the USSR, the Soviet Union at the time. He helped to ease the tensions of the uh, of the possible uh, war. And one thing Bobby did remarkably with his brother. You have to remember that John F. Kennedy was a uh, war hero. He had fought in the war. He knew the ugliness that military conflict could take. And many people around them were pushing for a military strike on Cuba, the Soviets. But Bobby and his brother uh, did not listen and luckily possibly saved us from going to nuclear war. Bobby was a voice of reason and helped his brother negotiate um, the missiles to be taken out of Cuba and behind the scenes agreed to have our missiles, the United States missiles, 
taken out of Turkey, uh, you know, seeing that as a small concession to keep world peace. And, uh, in, and during that time, and he assured his brother that he would, uh, he would be okay for the political fallout and that it was the right thing to do. And his brother listened to his counsel at that time, along with Theodore Sorensen and others. And uh, Bobby was really, again, a voice of reason. And later on, uh, he wrote a uh, book about uh, this, uh, 13 Days. Um, and he kind of uh, explained to readers exactly the things that went on behind the scenes. It's a pretty remarkable book. Okay, so he uh, played a significant role in helping his brother. So his relation was, his uh, brother was uh, really close. So how his brother's uh, John's death impacted him and impacted Kennedy family losing his another yeah, brother. And that's the part that, um, you know, really we see a new Bobby emerge. Uh, and, and that's the Bobby that people today are inspired by, you know, pretty much um, when you hear people today who never re who weren't even born um, at that time that he lived, including myself, so inspired by him. It was the Bobby that emerged after his brother's death on November 22nd, 1963. His brother's death, uh, death um, changed him immensely. The first change, he really softened a lot. He, uh, in many ways, um, people say he became more humble in the sense to realize that he was not, that, that they were not invincible. Uh, but on the other part of him, the softening part of him that really started to uh, have so much pain for losing his brother, his best friend, his hero in many ways, and the pain of that loss uh, made him, by his own testimony and those around him, so empathetic and, and compassionate towards other people in pain. And he was disappointed at the things he and his brother did not get to finish. And when, yeah, the okay. didn't get to finish. And, and there, was a trans, there was an inner transformation that happened in him uh, during that time. And he decided to run for Senate the next year, 1964. Okay, so after John's death, uh, as we know, LBJ was uh, vice president, so he became the president. How was how was Bobby's relation with uh, LBJ? Not very amicable, not very friendly. They did not get along. I think President Johnson felt uh, with the whole both Kennedy brothers and the Kennedy family, he felt uh, people set around him an inferiority complex. It wasn't very pleasant. <laughs> he did stay on for Attorney General for a short for a short while. And he gave, there was a, this Arthur Schlesinger wrote about, um, Bobby gave a speech in his, in his office to sit on, a, sit on the desk and said, we have to finish the work my brother started, even though this is president here, we have to, he's trying to stop everything we're doing. Uh, and eventually Bobby resigned because the tension was too great between him and Lyndon Johnson. Uh, the day John F. Kennedy was killed, Friday, November 22nd, 1963, President Johnson's team demanded that all of JFK's stuff was out of the office by that Sunday. It wasn't a very smooth and friendly transition uh, between them. He, you know, many people said President Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson was not his first choice to be on the ticket. And there was always an icy tension between the two of them, especially between Bobby and Lyndon, because Bobby was very protective of his brother. So the relationship was not very amicable. Okay, so after that, Bobby ran for senator. So why did he ran for senator and why did he uh, ran well, from New, New York? York? Was, uh, there was an opening. Uh, he felt that there was, there was uh, a place he could win from. New York, um, as anyone knows, is a blue state. Uh, 
they didn't call it a blue state back then. Franklin Roosevelt had been a governor there. Uh, that's where the New Deal came from. Francis Perkins was from there. And he knew there was a good chance he could win there, given the makeup of the state. And uh, he, he was from Massachusetts, which is also a blue state. But um, running from New York was a great opportunity for him. He, he did get accused of being what's called a carpetbagger, meaning somebody who just comes somewhere for um, an, oppor- an opportunity, very opportunistic. And he, uh, he, ra- he ran an, an, on the one sense because he felt that he could make an impact there. Many, it may have been, people said, a, a platform to run for the presidency one day, but uh, he, uh, on, on the surface, ran there to try and make a difference and try to pass some of his brother's programs as a senator to make a difference in New York. And he did win that election over Kenneth Keating in New York, um, a, a powerful Republican and an amazing victory. Uh, and he was, uh, if, you, if anybody watches videos or, or sees pictures of that time, People were immediately inspired by him, of course, because of his who his brother was, his brother recently passing. And uh, I think he wasn't ready to give up on public service yet after his brother's death. Okay, and, so, and soon after that, we saw he uh, started war on poverty and he, his visit to Mississippi Delta. Oh, yes. Can you describe mm-hmm. and his give insight on that? Mississippi Delta um, with, with no cameras were there. And he that changed his view on many things his he would he picked up a baby who was malnourished and starving there and he started crying people with him uh, a woman named uh, a Marion Edelman was there head of the children's defense fund and she said she had never seen somebody with such uh, compassion for what was happening there from such a privileged background and she even says today we're still looking for this generation's Bobby Kennedy and he went down there and he was so um, disgusted and uh, he saw there in the, in, in the richest country in the world, in such a prosperous country, see children starving. And he went back to Washington and fought for programs that would bring more funding there, that would work with uh, local governments there. And many of the programs he started there uh, are still going strong today uh, in that area. And there's a fantastic um, uh book um, about this where he he actually uh, decided to you know fight for programs that were um, really going to bring long-term uh, success there's a, a woman named her name is Ellen Meacham she wrote a book called uh, Delta Epiphany RFK Mississippi and she says the programs he fought for kept the region afloat despite conservative opposition and again still going strong today and there are many people today not just the impact on him Many people today uh, who are in politics, who ran for office, who get involved, they talk about his visit there and knowing about it and seeing his reaction and some of the pictures taken and as their inspiration to go into politics and fight for the poor and uh, voiceless. And on that visit made him so aware of the disparity in wealth in parts of the country. And he, he would take his children around to uh, poor areas in New York and other in Washington and make them see about how other people lived. Um, and it had a profound impact on him in the war on poverty. And that was probably an area where he and Lyndon Johnson uh, were on the same page. And he and I think it impacted him uh, in his running for president because people began to start to identify with him because at that time it started to become um, something different in him that he was this privileged uh, man from a very wealthy background that 
really and and not in an opportunistic way, but in a truly empathetic and compassionate way, started to identify with and fight for those who had no voice. And that's what he became in those last four or five years of his life, an advocate for the voiceless and um, people of all walks of life, all different backgrounds. He also, at that time, he also supported Cesar Chavez in his campaign. So can you tell about his struggle, his oh, help yes, uh, of Cesar Chavez yes. with um, his struggle? Chavez, we know, was, um, you know, really um, the, for fighting for, he stood with Cesar Chavez fighting for oppressed farm workers, um, the who Chavez was leading for and fighting for better conditions. And he developed a relationship with Chavez, with the Latino community there, who fell in love with him uh, during his presidential campaign. They saw the genuineness, the compassion, the authenticity in him. Um, and uh, there was a professor, um, Thomas Sandoval from uh, Pomona College, California. And he was young at the time. And he's still a professor there now. And he says, uh, he told, he said, he said, RFK's support for this cause endeared him to Latinos who just spoke volumes about his capacity for empathy and humanism. That's such a powerful figure in U.S. society, recognized our struggle, spoke volumes to a generation who knew the scourge of racial oppression. And he, uh, you know, he knew that him standing with Chavez would be a very strong influence, uh, a visual influence on their movement. And he helped to bring um, many reforms for these uh, farm workers the uh, and and Chavez, uh, you know, always uh, spoke about his indebtedness to Bobby Kennedy. And and the if you see him uh, mixing and meeting with some of the farm workers, some of the the uh, photos out there, he it was pretty remarkable the how they took to him. Um, and these are people who uh, really had nothing. They, they couldn't donate money to his campaign or anything. But it was just from you asked before about his brother's death. I think his brother's death softened him a lot and made him feel a lot of compassion for people that were left behind and voiceless. Okay, and during that time, we also saw Bobby's popularity grow not only in America but globally. And his speech of 1966, uh, of uh, Day of Affirmation speech in South Africa, it was one of the most iconic speeches yes. of that time of Bobby's life. So can you oh, give sure, us absolutely. insight that, on that uh, speech? I, is amazing speech, an amazing time. He went there as the brother of the fallen president and he went and what's remarkable about the speech he gave there, you know, it's the it's the peak of apartheid and Nelson Mandela still in prison at the time. And he went there um, and he and, 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 and something he said in the speech there uh, was something many people take with them in their lives today. Uh, he talked about the idea that we can't change the world ourselves and very few people um, will have the opportunity to bend history completely on a large scale. But he said, it, he said to the effect, it's from numberless diverse acts of courage and belief that human history is shaped. And he said, all each of us from, in our own way, we do little things. Every time each of us takes even a small stand against injustice, uh, we send forth uh, small ripples of hope. And I remember there was a woman, um, her name was Margaret Marshall. She was a, um, an apartheid activist, anti-apartheid activist. She's now, she served later on the Massachusetts Supreme Court. And she said it made such an impact on her life. Uh, and as many people said, because he, the message he gave there was that you don't have to try to change the whole world in one day or be, or despair because you don't have the power 
to do everything, but try to do one thing a day or as, as much as you can to fight against injustice. And, and, he, and he says, if each of us does this, then those energies combined together can make a huge impact. And he was uh, really, uh, you know, heralded on that visit. People loved seeing him. And he connected on that visit the, um, the struggles of the uh, black population in South Africa with the American Civil Rights Movement which was something Dr. King and others very much appreciated he did. And Dr. King made that same point that, that there was a, um, a connection between the American Civil Rights Movement and what was going on in Africa. And Bobby Kennedy's speech that day um, in Cape Town, the University of Cape Town, um, really uh, resonated with so many people around the world. And it's probably one of his most uh, renowned speeches for that reason, because he kind of became a motivational, inspirational speaker that day, not just a politician. It was indeed an yeah. inspiring uh, speech. So moving on, so why did Bobby ran for president? What inspired him? And for, was Bobby the reason that LBJ de decided well, you know, not to run for president? Account, again? But most, some, most accounts say it was the opposite. When LBJ decided not to run, uh, it was that's what drove Bobby into the race uh, full force. And Bobby ran for the Vietnam War was something he was horrified the way it was going. And he had a lot of personal guilt about that response. But he and his brother were the ones who first got us into the conflict. And he realized, you know, like he had the political courage. This is rare today to change his mind and realize he and his brother had made a mistake. It was time to pull out. And he became a anti-war uh, candidate. Um, didn't like the way that the war was dividing the country. He, of course, supported the anti-communism uh, uh, basis for the war, but not the way it was being fought. He wanted us out of the war. He didn't like what it was doing to the country. He also didn't like the truth of the matter that it was young, poor people, many of them African-American, poor whites, who were bearing the brunt of a rich man's war in his mind. So the injustice of the war really bothered him. That was one reason he ran. He felt the country needed to be unified. And that's where he brought so much hope to people in that campaign. He was seen as the person who could bring us together. And people yearn for that. People yearn for that now. People yearn for that in him. And that's with his death, uh, with people feeling what could have been, that unifying force that could have brought people together. And he was starting to do that in his campaign in an amazing way uh, before he was tragically taken from us um, in June of 68. But that's what made him run. And he, of course, wanted to carry the mantle of his, his brother and continue their unfinished work and correct the trajectory the country was going on. Okay, and uh, during his campaign, when uh, in April in Indiana, when he heard the news, Dr. King was assassinated, and that day he gave yes. in one of the iconic speeches of 20th century. Absolutely. So, can you give um, us about an insight on that? Fascinating. Um, that was the night, and I want to say there that was Indiana. And now, if you go in Indianapolis, in the in the place where he gave that speech, on the top of the pickup truck, there's now a statue of him and Dr. King holding, you know, reaching across to each other. But uh, in this, he gave a speech in Indianapolis. He was about to give a campaign speech. And he got up in front of the crowd, a largely African-American crowd, um, and announced to the crowd that Dr. King was assassinated that night. And in his speech, he talked about how um, he first time publicly he had ever mentioned his brother's death publicly. He, he tried to resonate, um, identify the crowd, say, I know what it's like. I had a member of my family killed. He was killed by a white man. 
uh, trying to show that it wasn't not everything was racially based. Uh, he tried to connect with the crowd there, and he said, um, "You know, we we can move forward in two ways. We can move forward with hatred." or love how Dr. King uh, would have wanted. And he uh, connected so well with the crowd in an amazing way. It was the only city in America. There was no rioting that night. Uh, and his speech was the difference between the peaceful Indiana that was and the really ravaged one um, uh, uh, that it could have been. And I think uh, that's what made that speech so remarkable. And John, Congressman John Lewis, the legendary congressman uh, who uh, was right in the forefront of the civil rights movement, March with Dr. King, was very young at the time, was at that speech with Bobby Kennedy. And he said he was crying. He had never fell in love with, you know, he said after that day, and Congressman Lewis, who's African-American, said there was only, I always, he goes, the only, um, I was ready to give my life for Bobby Kennedy. He said, this, the only person I ever said that about was Dr. King. And both he and Andrew Young, the ambassador of the UN, who had, had marched with Dr. King very close, close with him, said only Bobby and Dr. King were the only men that they give their lives for. And John Lewis saw the effect he had on the crowd. And Bobby was, it wasn't his words as much. It was him and him being up there saying it and the, and the energy and the kindness coming out of him and the compassion um, and the way he used his stature to... Uh, ease the possibility of violence was amazing and uh, probably one of the finest moments of his life, I think. Okay, and soon after that, he was uh, one of the, he was a favorite against uh, kind of likes of Eugene McCarthy to get a nomination. And, and sadly, two months after he won, and he uh, two months after the death of Dr. King, Dr. King, he went in California primary and he was shot that day. He was assassinated that day. Yeah, so, so can I you give us insight, full insight on that? Bobby that really, I think, says, uh, talks about his character. He was killed that night, yes, after winning the California primary. Uh, you know, it was, his wife, Ethel, was there with him. Um, and he was starting to gain a lot of momentum in the race amazingly bringing people together, uh, shocking people with the things he was willing to talk about. And he was shot that night um, uh, and uh, in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles by a man named Sirhan Sirhan, who had some issues with uh, RFK's past stance on Palestinian-Israeli issues. I don't think he properly understood. Uh, and uh, he assassinated Bobby Kennedy and later came to regret it and uh, of course and the the this and as bobby lay there on the floor uh and this is the story that people told and they, they all about the first thing he said was is, is everybody okay he was concerned about how everybody else was doing and that was a testament to his character and when he died that night if you if you see video it was people of all backgrounds all communities in the united states um mourning his death and if you see videos of his funeral, of the train going to his funeral, um, the train that was carrying his body, uh, poor, rich, all people, uh, you know, so, uh, just standing out there mourning for what could have been. Um, and this was somebody that five, six years before was known as ruthless and uh, really someone who uh, was just an advocate for his brother. And he became in that campaign kind of this advocate for the voiceless and if you see that those clips of his funeral, that kind of speaks for that. 
Okay, and well, I guess uh, Ambassador Hotel was also changed to a, some kind of a school or uh, library. I guess it's now yes, changed to that yes, in honor of uh, Robert. A, a public service. Um, yes, it's been it's been changed to a school, and it uh, there's uh, you know and, and and I don't and I don't think the Kennedy family had any problem with that. They didn't really want um, much of uh, a remnant of what happened that night and. Uh, you know, it was, and I think Bobby would be perfectly okay with that being, it being chained to a school and, uh, something to help youth in the community. Okay. And so how, how much his death impacted Americans? Sixties was a very dark for Americans as we saw John's death, assassinations, Dr. Yeah, King, Malcolm X, and then assassination, Bobby. That, that year, 1968, so the death of he and Dr. King, it was, uh, crazy time in America and um, really was something that impacted people greatly. And I think uh, Bobby's, what he left behind um, him, his death, what it did is there are people today um, who their sole reason for getting into public service, their sole reason for what they do in life, um, whether it be in the public sector, the private sector is coming from their inspiration from his life, especially those that last year or two. And, what he did, uh, leaving behind some uh, more specifics, the Bedford-Stuyvesant area of New York, um, as a senator, he had fought for its uh, a, a refurbishment, and it's now today a sinusure of a symbol of hope and uh, really a renewal in Brooklyn, New York. And that traces back to him, and there's actually a statue of him in Columbus uh, Park in Brooklyn. And he really... Uh, you know, still today inspires people amazingly. In 1988, and recently they asked people the three people they admired most in history, Rolling Stone magazine. He was always the top three, sometimes even above his brother, because people are still today, many people inspired by the idea of this rich, privileged person becoming the quintessence of a social justice hero, someone who was fighting for those uh, who did not have powerful lobbyists and didn't always have a voice. And many people, Joe, uh, the person running for president now, uh, the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, won the Ripple of Hope Award a few years ago from the RFK Center of Human Rights. And he said, it's the biggest honor of my life. And he said, uh, Bobby Kennedy was his one true hero he has. And, uh, you know, and, the, and they're still today, the RFK Center gives that an award every year for human rights and uh, in honor of Bobby and the Ripple of Hope Award in reference to that speech that you mentioned in South Africa where he talked about the ripples of hope. And he just today, uh, even two few years ago, Governor Phil Murphy took um, office in New Jersey and he quoted Bobby Kennedy as his inspiration in his inaugural address. Uh, and when people think of somebody who does good um, and uses, tries to live out their... Uh, creed in their life when his mother the rose kennedy the kennedy mother she used to always talk about you know everybody has their own religious text and every religious text speaks of compassion for the less fortunate and her then their her favorite passage in there was to whom much has been given uh, much will be expected from the book of luke and bobby took that with him his whole life and really tried to live that out the last years of his life there as you see um, and was trying to make uh, bring a more compassionate society to America and to really transform it. And people today uh, still see him as their inspiration. And that's pretty remarkable. 
um, for somebody who really did not have too long of a life in public office. Yes, indeed. Indeed, Bobby left a great legacy and there are a lot of lessons to be learned from his life. And we, we can see. So can you tell us how relevant is Bobby? You have told us a lot, lot on that, but can you give us more uh, insight on how relevant Bobby relevant, is in today's uh, world? In our world and in the United States, because people are yearning uh, for someone who can bring people together, who can cross uh, different lines of, geograph of geographic lines, um, racial lines, ethnic lines, and connect with people and build uh, a coalition of hope uh, in some way. Uh, you know, they're hoping that it's from the current candidate for the Democratic Party, uh, Joe Biden, or whomever in the future. Um, when people uh, today look to his life um, and they wonder the things that could have been, I think uh, the, the people still living to the people still trying to live out his legacy and fulfill his legacy can see how relevant and needed his compassion, his empathy um, is for people today. And to be a dreamer and idealist, he, you know, there's a famous quote that you probably know. He used to always uh, say from George Bernard Shaw that some men see things as they are and say, why I, I dream of things that never were and say, why not that idealism, okay that hope. Uh, Barack Obama cited it as an inspiration for him. And we need more of uh, Bobby's idealism. Uh, we need more of people that using their lives um, of privilege who to help those less fortunate and uh, keep fighting for them as he did uh, right up until the end of his life. Uh, he had nothing financially to gain from running for office. He had been at the peak and it was truly, uh, I think we need more people like him. We need to uh, you know, help uh, bring forth idealists and people that can inspire us with their ideas and and their energy and their hope. Yes, indeed, Bobby was an inspiration for us all. And uh, thank you, Justin, for discussing Bobby's life in inside with us in full detail. And thank you for oh, giving no your very nice important to speak time with you. Have for a our podcast. And, uh, speak to you soon. We will be ending this episode with a speech of Bobby, a speech that he gave the day after Dr. King's death. And it was one of the most iconic speeches of Bobby's life. The victims of the violence are black and white, rich and poor, young and old, famous and unknown. They are most important of all, human beings whom other human beings loved and needed. No one can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. And yet it goes on and on and on in this country of ours. Whenever any American's life is taken by another American unnecessarily. Whenever we tear at the fabric of our lives, which another man has painfully and clumsily woven for himself and his children, whenever we do this, then the whole nation is degraded. Too often we honor swagger and bluster and the wielders of force. Too often we excuse those 
who are willing to build their own lives on the shattered dreams of other human beings. But this much is clear. Violence breeds violence. Repression breeds retaliation. And only a cleansing of our whole society can remove this sickness from our souls. For when you teach a man to hate and to fear his brother, when you teach that he is a lesser man because of his color or his beliefs or the policies that he pursues, when you teach that those who differ from you threaten your freedom or your job or your home or your family, then you also learn to confront others not as fellow citizens, but as enemies. To be met not with cooperation, but with conquest. To be subjugated and to be mastered. We learn at the last to look at our brothers as aliens. Alien men with whom we share a city, but not a community. Men bound to us in common dwelling but not in a common effort. We learn to share only a common fear, only a common desire to retreat from each other, only a common impulse to meet disagreement with force. Our lives on this planet are too short. The work to be done is too great to let this spirit flourish any longer in this land of ours. Of course, we cannot banish it with a program, but we can perhaps remember, if only for a time, that those who live with us are our brothers, that they share with us the same short moment of life, that they seek, as do we, nothing but the chance to live out their lives in purpose and in happiness winning what satisfaction and fulfillment that they can. Surely this bond of common fate, surely this bond of common goals can begin to teach us something. Surely we can learn at the least to look around at those of us, of our fellow men. And surely we can begin to work a little harder to bind up the wounds among us and to become in our hearts brothers and countrymen once again.